0: I wonder if you have paused to ponder how simple and strange what we are doing at Passion is. We sing and we preach and we preach and we sing and there's message and there's music and music and message. How strange and simple that is. I know there are more pieces to it than that. I know there are community groups. I know this this amazing event is undergirded with prayer. I know that there are extraordinary logistical efforts that make it happen. But when you watch it from the outside, it looks like they preach and they sing and they preach and they sing. Have you, have you ever stopped to ponder and let it sink in how strange that is? No other religion does this. None. No other philosophical or political movement on the planet does this. Muslims don't do this, Hindus don't do this, Buddhists don't do this, Sikhs don't do this, Apple computer, even though they have their worship services, and Tim Cook may preach, they don't sing. Only Christians do this. Why is that? This cries out for an explanation. I don't like to do things without a reason. I don't like to just year after year go to passion because it's done. It's fun. Other people have done it. I'll do it too. Let's just do it. I like to have reasons for what I do reasons that are sunk down into ultimate reality, reasons that have goals that reach up into ultimate reality so that I'm anchored at the bottom and anchored at the top and my life does what it does because there's connection with ultimate reality. That's what I like to do. So maybe someone would respond to that and say, Good grief lighten up. Can't we just do stuff? For goodness sakes, you have to have a reason for doing everything you do. Can't we just do stuff? And of course, the answer to that is yes. You can just do stuff. There's a name for that way of life. It's called instinct. Eagles just do stuff, elephants just do stuff, butterflies just do stuff, beavers, they just do stuff. Of course, they do some amazing things, but they don't know what they're doing. You weren't made to be like that. You're not a mere animal. Animals are made to live by instinct. You're not. You're made to have reasons for what you do. You have a mind. You're supposed to know what you do, why you do it. You're supposed to think down into the bottom of things and connect. And think up into the ultimate heights of things and connect. So there's a trajectory to your life. It has meaning. You're not an animal. You don't just do stuff, I hope. So, I'm coming to passion. Why? We're going to preach and sing and preach and sing and preach and sing. That's weird. Nobody does that. There's not any other movement on the planet that gets together to preach and then sing and sing and sing and preach some more and then sing why are we doing this? That's what I want to talk about. And I've got two answers or two clusters of answers. One is to address why do Christians around the world do this? They do it. Why do they do it? They do it weekly. They do it in conferences. Why are Christians like that? And the second question I have is, why is passion like that? The first is a broad answer, and the second is the narrow, what makes passion do this? And understand, I'm not on the leadership team. I'm an invited guest, one of the highest privileges of my life. But I do watch because I like to do things because I understand what's going on and I don't want to be a part of what I don't like. So my second question is going to be, where are they coming from that creates this? Why do they do this and do it like this? So that's where we're going in this talk. Because as far as I can see, life is so short and eternity is so long. With God and in ever-increasing joy or without Him and everlasting misery, life is so short that just to do things is insane. So why are you here? Why do you submit yourself to this? For goodness sakes, it's a long day. You know what you're doing. You know what's happening. Why are you there? So the first answer is the broad one, and here it is. I believe that one of the, I'm just going to say one of the I might be tempted to say the main, but let's just leave it at one of the biggest reasons for why Christians around the world do this, preach and sing, preach and sing, preach and sing, one of the reasons why Christians all over the world do this is because Christianity is the only religion, the only movement that is created by and sustained by news, news, the sort of thing you see at 5 o'clock on television, the sort of thing you see at 10 o'clock on television, news, something happened. What is it? What happened? Christianity is the only faith that is created by and sustained by a news character. News! Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then, in the fullness of time, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I've got news, shepherds. News. Go. Tell it. On the mountains. There's news behind this thing called Christianity. So, something happened. And you and I had nothing to do with it. It happened suddenly, single-handedly, unilaterally, crashing into history, and you and I were not part of the cause. We didn't shape it. We didn't make it happen. It just happened. God Almighty said, time, news. You had nothing No hand in it at all. It arrives as news to you. In the fullness of time, born of a virgin, a God-man on the planet, living the life of perfection we needed and didn't have, suffering a punishment we deserved and didn't want, rising from the dead with a life that we share, that is finished. It's news. You didn't make it happen. You didn't shape it. There was no Congress. There was no consultation. God Almighty, single-handed, said, it is time I'm coming and he did it, and it's finished. The God-man, the perfect life, the atoning death, the massive triumphant resurrection is simply over, and news. It's news. It's a kind of news that creates its own kind of event and communication. There's a scope to it, wide as the universe. There's a duration to it, everlasting kingdom. There's a global relevance to it, every tribe and tongue and people and nation like we'll talk about late tonight there is a greatness to its joy such that it must be preached and sung, preached and sung, preached and sung. Did you know, think about this, most of you haven't because you're not preachers, this is about all I think about, that for 2,000 years the church has proven over and over again that this news cannot be merely discussed. It cannot be merely analyzed. It cannot be merely taught. It must be heralded. It must be heralded. There is this thing called expository exultation where an anointed person sees the news, is burning with the news, opens the mouth, does some explaining, and in the explaining exults over what is being explained, and it's called preaching. And when it happens, people sing, and they sing, and they sing. That's why it's done all over the world. Christianity is created by and sustained by news that breaks in and creates its own form of event and communication. It will not just be analyzed. It will not just be explained. It won't just be discussed. If you are planning a church, don't build it around discussion. Herald to those ten people. Herald to those... 30,000 people herald the news week in and week out, unpack the news and prove nothing will suffice in terms of communication apart from a heralding of the news and then a singing to the one about whom the news has been preached. So that's the first reason why this is done all over the world. No other religion has News. They tell you to do things. They tell you to do things. So the, the the message of every religion is do your best for God. This is what Louis said last night was finished. So name your prophet, the proper name, pray your prayers give your alms, keep your fast, make your pilgrimage, maybe God will have mercy. That is not good news. It is slavery and it isn't true. One faith on the planet has news glorious, God-breaking-in, saving-sinner news. And you sing it. And I preach it. And so do millions and millions around the world. That's answer number one. Why do we do this all over the world? Answer, because Christianity is the only movement that is created and sustained by news. Now, let's get specific. We're at Passion, and there's preaching and singing and preaching and singing and message and music and message and music. Why? Well, for all the reasons I just said, but there's something more specific. Namely, the leadership of passion, believes something about the news. Namely, this is the sentence that's going to carry the rest of this message. The leadership of passion believes that the best news, the greatest good of the good news, is God's gift of the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. Passion believes, and remember, I don't say this because I write the script here. I say it because I've read it for 18 years. watch. I don't want to be a part of anything that doesn't get the gospel in its depths and heights. The leadership of passion believes that the greatest good of the good news is the gift, God's gift, of the beauty of God in Jesus Christ for your everlasting enjoyment. Let me be clear, when I say that the best gift of the gospel is God's gift of the beauty of God, I don't mean beauty abstracted, like I'm going to worship beauty and here's God over here, a person that can relate to. Just here's beauty, like he paints his beauty and I worship his beauty and there's God. I'm not thinking that way at all. When I say The greatest good of the gospel is God's gift of the beauty of God for your everlasting enjoyment. I mean, God's gift of God as beautiful for your everlasting enjoyment. So I wrote Louis on Monday. And I asked him, as I always do, any sense of where you're going? so I can get on board. And in that email, back to me, there was a three-word parenthesis that shaped everything I'm saying. The sentence began, how does the passion message, and then parenthesis, God's beauty unmatched, Close parenthesis. And then he finished the sentence. Doesn't matter what the rest of the sentence said. How does the passion message, parenthesis, God's beauty unmatched? So for 18 years, the central note that's been struck in the preaching, in the singing, has been the greatest good, the greatest blood-bought good of the gospel is God's gift of the beauty of God for your everlasting enjoyment. Now, here are the questions that that raises that I'm going to try to answer. Number one, is that, is that biblical? Is that in the Bible? If you don't see this in the Bible, you could say, tough, Louis. Piper, I'm out of here. I'm a Bible person. Me too. So this is the first question for me. So if I hear this message like God's beauty unmatched, And then Piper adds, the supreme best gift of the love of God is the beauty of God. I want to know, is that in the Bible? Is that the way I should think about the gospel? And then I'm going to ask, when I get that answered, what difference would that make for you? If you thought that way, if you thought about the gospel that way, that the best gift of the gospel in my life is the beauty of God for my everlasting enjoyment, if you thought that way, what difference would it make? Okay, first question, is it in the Bible? Is it biblical? If you, if you have a Bible you want to look, That's fine. If you want to just listen, that's okay also. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and read first verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers... So that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Stay there with me for a minute in verse 4. Near the end, lock your eyes or in your mind on the words, the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ. Now there's the word gospel. You all know, most of you know. Gospel, old English word, God spell, comes from good new tidings. God spell means good news. Very good translation of euangelion, good news. <laughs> gospel. So, let's translate it that way. The light of the good news of the glory of Christ. Second thing to notice, what's the content of the good news? It is the good news of the glory of Christ. Now, you might have, most of you aren't even looking at your Bible, that's okay, because we've got text, um, but if you had some paraphrases, one might read, it does read, the glorious light of the good news. It makes an adjective out of the the word glory, the glorious light of the good news. Or another one reads, the light of the glorious gospel makes an adjective out of the noun glory. That's a paraphrase. ESV, NASB, NIV, Holman Christian, New King James, all of them translate precisely word for word the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The content of the good news in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians is the glory of Christ. That's the content of the gospel. It's the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now just ponder with me a minute the word glory. It's a religious word mainly. Not really. It's a a sport word really. Whoa! Glory. We won the whatever. I don't even know who played anything. But glory is used a lot. Everybody knows what glory means and it comes pretty close to what the Bible means. It means beautiful. That was a beautiful shot. A beautiful pass, a beautiful catch. That was glorious. That sunset is glorious. That act of sacrifice, of laying down your life among the unreached peoples is beautiful. Glorious. I don't think there's a lot of controversy around the word glory at this point. So let's just translate it that way. The light of the good news, of the beauty of Christ. It's biblical! That's it. I mean, if you don't see that, I haven't done my job, or it's not there. I will stake my life on it being there. This is the gospel of the beauty of Christ, because glory, at least includes beauty, maybe a lot more. So my answer to the first question is yes. Now let's go to, to, uh, to verse 6. Two verses later, Second Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and what you should be looking for is parallels with verse 4. The God who said, that light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, here comes, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you hear all the parallels with verse 4? Let's put them together. Let's do verses 4 and 6 together. Now just point to the parallels and see what it unfolds. So here we are in verse 4, at the end, The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now drop down to verse 6 near the end. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So you see the parallels. Light parallels light. Gospel parallels knowledge. Glory parallels glory. And Christ parallels God. Now, here's the question. Are those two glories? Like you got in verse 4, you got the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in verse 6, you've got the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Are those two different glories, two different beauties in the gospel? They're not. And and Paul goes out of his way to help us see that they're not. Look at verse 4 immediately, as soon as he says the, gospel, the glory of Christ, he adds, who is the image of God? The reason Christ is glorious in his action on Calvary, in the resurrection, in his perfect life, all of his speech, the reason he's glorious is because he is the radiance of God. He's the outstreaming of the beauty of God. And Paul says that so that we won't confuse the fact that there are two glories here. There's one glory, it's the glory of Christ, the glory of God. He does it again in verse 6, look. He says the glory of God and then immediately he adds in the face of Jesus Christ. It says, oh, no, he can't let it come out of his mouth without saying, no, I, when I say glory of God, I mean in Christ. And when I say glory of Christ, I mean image of God. There is one glory, and it's the glory of God. There's one beauty in the gospel. It is the beauty of God in Christ. Christ, the image of God. God in the face of Christ. Answer to the first question. If passion says, the greatest good of the gospel, is the gift of the beauty of God for your everlasting enjoyment, that's biblical. Second question, what difference does that make for you? My guess is that, for many of you, this language is not the way you grew up talking about the gospel. I don't know that you are familiar with anyone saying, when Christ died for me, the best thing he purchased for me is the greatest gift of the love of God, namely, God's gift of the beauty of God to satisfy my soul forever. I don't know how many of you ever talked that way. Or when you got saved, think, that's what happened. So, here's here's why I'm preaching on this. I want you, true Christian, to know that happened to you. And you've experienced that. Nobody may have ever taught you the language to use to define what God really did in your life. And then there's others of you who've been playing this game called religion because it's a cool group on your campus and you've never seen it. I'm talking a foreign language to you right now. I don't even know what you mean by the beauty of God. I want you to see So I've got three answers to this last question. What difference will it make in your life? Here's number one. If you believe, which passion does and I do, that the greatest good of the gospel is the gift of the beauty of God for your everlasting enjoyment, if you believe that, implication number one is your saving faith is not at root a decision about Christ's truth, but a sight of Christ's glory. Say it again. The first implication is, at root, this is important, at root, your faith, your saving faith, is not a decision about the truth of Christ, at root, it is a seeing of the beauty of Christ. The all satisfying, all compelling beauty of Christ. When you are confronted with infinite, all satisfying beauty, the question is not so what's your decision? question is, what do you see? Do you see Christ in the gospel as beautiful? More beautiful, more glorious, more satisfying than anything else? That's the question. That is the root question. When you are presented with infinite beauty, all satisfying beauty, the question is not so What's your decision? Picture yourself in an art class and the teacher holds up a beautiful painting and you look at it and find it boring and the teacher says to you, so make up your mind. Decide, is it beautiful or is it boring? Your proper response to the teacher is, it doesn't work like that. You show me a painting, I think it's boring, and you tell me, decide, decide. It's not what you do when you see something, you don't decide. You just either see it as boring or you see it as beautiful. You don't decide to see it as beautiful. If if you tell me I'm supposed to write on the test, it's beautiful, I can do that, but there's a name for that. It's called lying or hypocrisy. You can't decide yourself into seeing as beautiful what you think is boring. It doesn't work like that. And you would be right to respond to her that way, or him. Deciding isn't what gets you there. I was 18 once. You know how long ago that was? 50 years. And I sang a song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I sang that. I loved that. I meant that. And I'm singing it now and meaning it. It's a good song. However, I have learned something. Beneath and before I could ever decide to lay my life down, in the discipleship of Jesus Christ. I had to see Him. Otherwise, I'm playing with Him. Does somebody get an arm behind my back? It might be called hell. It might be called approval of parents. It's just, they're just making me do this. But I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything beautiful. I haven't seen anything infinitely worthy of my affections. But I had seen. I had. So when I sang it, I meant it. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll do anything for you, because I've seen you are infinite, all-satisfying beauty, forever. There is no religion, no movement, nothing in the world that could ever come close to what you are for me, now that I have seen. So deciding is good. You can make decisions all your life long about Jesus and about your life and those decisions must be made and they are either good or bad and they must be if they're going to be authentic discipleship they must be rooted in have you seen him? That's implication number one. Your saving faith is not at root a decision It is at root seeing, beauty, all-compelling, all-surpassing, all-satisfying. Second implication, in view of that, the ultimate problem of every human being is not merely that we are bent against God, which we are, but that we are blind to God. So when you think about lostness on your campus, lostness, what's the problem at root it's not merely rebellion, but blindness also. In and through the rebellion. We're not only stubborn, no, do you know your heart? My heart is a sixty two-year-old Christian heart because I was saved at six. And it's a stubborn heart. I love my way. Thank you very much. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like people to cross my plan. That's right at the heart of my wickedness, but it's worse. Because my stubbornness creates a stupor, creates a, a haze It creates a horrible, horrible blindness so that I can stand before a sermon, I can stand before the Bible, I can stand before a song exalting the beauty of Christ and see nothing attractive. Boring. That's frightening. That's your condition. And every other person on the planet we're not just in rebellion against the authority of God, we're blind to the beauty of God. And that's how desperate and how helpless we are. So, what kind of blindness is this? It's not a blindness that keeps you from seeing facts, right? Sit, I'm talking facts, I'm just. You can hear, you can process with your brain right now. Ears are working, eyes are working, facts are coming out of my mouth. You're doing some processing. doesn't stop you from that. Facts, facts, facts. The devil is a fact machine. He knows God is holy. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that God is the living God. He knows he's finished. And guess what? It's not beautiful to him. What, what we're blind to is not facts. The blindness, let's go to verse 4 again. Chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians. Look at it. The God of this world has blinded the minds. He didn't blind your eyes. You can see, you're looking at me right now, or the screen, or wherever. And your brain is processing these things sensory inputs and you're putting them together, construing some meaning, and Satan in many of you is doing his last ditch best to make this look foolish, not beautiful. The the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the beauty of Christ. Bible, no beauty. Sermon, no beauty. Song, no beauty. Or a tricky one. Aesthetic beauty, logical beauty, not Christ beauty. So it's not a blindness to facts and it's not a blindness to thinking powers. There are professors on your campuses who have massive thinking powers and write books in the religion department about the Bible and can't see its beauty. The reason for this blindness, let's make sure we don't understand, misunderstand verse 4, the reason for this blindness is not that you are the helpless pawn of Satan. It says he's blinding you. The reason for your blindness is that you have joined Satan in hating the light. Listen to Jesus. This is John chapter 3, verse 19 to 20. John 3, 19 to 20. Jesus talking about his coming. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates, notice those two words, love and hate, love and hate, they love the darkness, they hate the light, and therefore does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The root of my blindness, the root of your blindness, is not that we are victims of darkness, but that we are lovers of darkness. Nobody had to do this to you. I love the darkness. Or, the reason for our blindness is not that we are hindered from the light, but that we are haters of the light. You see that there? I hate the light. It makes me look so dirty. Like this brooch around my neck turns out to be a roach. I've been fondling it all my life feeling how smooth it is, and the light comes on, yeah, it's a road. I don't want ever to see my love broach as a road. so keep your light, I'm having a good time in the darkness of my way, that's why we're blind, we love the dark and we hate the light. So answer to implication number two, if you believe, like passion does and like I do, that the greatest good of the good news is the gift of the beauty of God, then you understand your lostness and the world's lostness, not to be just rebellion against the authority of God, but blindness to the beauty of God. One more implication. if you believe this, that the greatest good of the good news is the gift of the beauty of God for your everlasting enjoyment, then conversion, your conversion was a miracle of God's gift of spiritual sight. Your conversion at its root was the gift of God's miracle of spiritual sight. Let's go back to verse six of chapter four of 2nd Corinthians. This is God's remedy to the blindness of verse four. Verse six, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he's referring back to the God who created light at the beginning of history. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has done the same thing, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the beauty, glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what that's saying? When God created the world, darkness brooded over the waters. And God said... Let there be light and there was light. and Paul is saying, that's how everybody gets saved. He shown in our hearts could be when you were four you didn't have a clue what was happening to you or 14 or 34. and this may be the first time anybody has ever put words on that moment when, well, yes, Christ, I'm going, I'm in, I'm all in. And nobody ever described it like verse 6. The God who said, let there be light at the beginning, said, let there be light into your heart. And there was light. One night, you were reading the Bible, and you just wanted to quit, go to television, and it was just boring. The next night, you can't put it down. What happened? Decision? I don't think so. Lots of decisions follow that moment. I'm going after him with all my might. I'm finding a church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm dropping these habits. I am all in because last night, I don't know what happened, but I saw, I saw self-authenticating, self-evidencing, irresistible, all-compelling, all-satisfying glory. I'm never, ever turning away from this. That's what happens when you get saved. You don't have to use those words, you don't have to feel it in any particular personality form, but you got to see. You got to see. So let's do a closing summary here. Here we are at Passion, preaching, singing, preaching, singing, preaching, singing. Why? Because Christianity alone of all the religions of the world is built on, sustained by news. God acted at a place, at a time. Tell it on the mountains. God has acted in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Perfect life that I needed and didn't have. Awesome, terrible, exquisite suffering I deserved and didn't want resurrection into life, I get finished news. There's no other religion that does it and therefore it creates a moment of heralding and a moment of singing. Week after week after week, herald, sing, herald, sing. And it creates events like this. And then, it was a kind of news. The best gift of which was God's beauty for your everlasting enjoyment so that your faith is not at root your decision about God's truth. Faith at root is your seeing God as beautiful and your lostness is not merely rebellion against his authority, but blindness to his beauty. And your conversion was not merely or will not be merely. You're deciding to follow him, but his giving you the gift of sight. Now tomorrow You're going to go back to campuses, and you might be saying, "Okay, their biggest problem is blindness. Conversion is a miracle. What am I supposed to do? Verse 5, the one I've left out the whole time. Sandwiched in between the blindness and the miracle. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. We proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants. Proclamation of Christ as Lord, presentation of yourself as servant. If you're a Christian, you are a walking miracle of sight. And God has ordained that the objects of the miracle become the agents of the miracle. So I close with these words. This is Acts chapter. 26, verses 17 and 18, and I'm going to give it to you now as my last words, only they're the words of Jesus. And if you will receive it, they are the words of Jesus for you. I, that's Jesus, am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Once more, Father, I ask, make our preaching and our singing expressions of and instruments of the miracle of sight. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.